I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. So before we get into the Bible contradictions that we're going to talk about tonight, I I just want to remind us of what this series is is all about. This series, Evidence for the Bible, is meant to be a long, somewhat exhaustive series dealing with why we should trust the Bible, handling the most common and the most important attacks on the Bible. Sometimes the common ones aren't terribly important. Sometimes the important ones aren't terribly common, but I'm going to try to handle both um, because sometimes someone will claim something against the scripture that even if it's true, doesn't really undermine much. You know, it's, it's more of a talking point. Other times they're, they're more rare claims, but these are really important to discuss. So that's why I started the, the series dealing with prophecy. So we laid out a prophetic foundation for seeing that God has in fact spoken through the Bible because then all the other questions come out. Well, how do I know this was written before these things took place? How do I know the text hasn't changed over time? How do I know the translations that are available to me are faithful to the original? And so we've done with, we dealt with all that. And so right now we're dealing with a more common attack, the supposed contradictions in the Bible. So tonight we're going to go over 13 Bible contradictions. (laughs) Yes, that's right. 13 supposed Bible contradictions. Now, what I'm doing tonight that's different than last time or next time is these are all about specifically the crucifixion and the resurrection. Specifically the crucifixion and resurrection. They're not Bible contradictions that, are, that approach any other areas of scripture. Uh, we did some of that last, last time and we'll do more next time. But this is just about the crucifixion and resurrection because it's a really common point of attack. Atheists will tend in debates... And Bible critics in discussions and on, on their blogs and on their websites to offer lists of what they consider to be contradictions in the Bible. And on every one of these lists is pretty much all of them is a section on, you know, the crucifixion, the resurrection, these narratives that we find in the, uh, in the New Testament. Keep in mind, we've got four accounts of Jesus's death and resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and a few other passages in Acts, 1 Corinthians, things like that, that touch on the topics as well. So, this is great fodder for them to try to look for conflicting statements. The stuff I'm using today all comes, except for I think one which is so common I had to throw it in there even though it wasn't on this website. But they pretty much all 13 or 12 of the 13 come from infidels.org. These contradictions and the verses used to support that they're contradictions come directly from infidels.org. This is their banner on their webpage. If you want to go support them, they're in the middle of a $40,000 fundraising uh, drive right now. So you can help them out. Um, infidels.org was, was just the first to pop up when I, when I typed in like Bible contradictions. It's the first website that pops up. It's a frequently cited, frequently used site amongst Bible critics. There's other ones as well, but this is a good representative. So here they are. I'm going to run through the 13, just, just like you'd hear them if it was from an atheist or in the middle of some kind of attack on the Bible. And then we'll go back over them one at a time. Okay. So here they are in quick order. Number one, did Jesus answer his accusers? Did he answer his accusers? Not according to Matthew 27, but according to John. Yep, he did. Contradiction. Number two, what color was Jesus's robe? Was it scarlet or was it purple? Scarlet or purple? Contradiction. Number three, who carried the cross? Was it Simon or was it Jesus? Who carried the cross? Which one of these guys carried the cross? Number four, how long was Jesus in the tomb? Was it three days and three nights, according to Matthew 1240? Or was it less time? Sometime Friday to early Sunday, according to Luke, and also according to Matthew. 
And they'll say that's also a contradiction. Number five, what was written above the cross? We have four different accounts of the sign above the cross. Did it say this is Jesus, King of the Jews? The, the King of the Jews? This is the King of the Jews? Or Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews? Which one was it? Number six, where were the women during the crucifixion? Were they watching from afar, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Or, according to John, were they close enough to hear Jesus' words when he spoke to, to Mary while on the cross? Number seven, did both of those who were crucified alongside Jesus revile him? Or just one of them revile him? Well, according to Matthew, we have both. And then in Luke, this is, this, I'm representing here, this is how it's presented on infidels.org. In Luke, just one of them did. And number eight, who visited the tomb first? Was it Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, so two ladies in Matthew 28? Was it both of these Marys and Salome, or Salome, uh, that would be three people? Or was it Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and other women? That's a minimum of five, according to Luke. Or was it just Mary Magdalene, according to John 20? When did they visit the tomb? When they visited the tomb, was it toward dawn? Like Matthew says, after sunrise, like Mark says, was it at early dawn, like Luke 24 says, or was it still dark, like John 20, verse 1 says? I'm not making these up. These are, these are from their website. I didn't pick the wimpy ones. These are just what they have. Number 10, where was the stone when they arrived? Was the stone already moved, according to Mark, Luke, and John, or was the stone still in place covering the tomb, according to Matthew 28? Number 11, what did the tomb visitors do next? What was their next activity? Did they run to tell the disciples or did they say nothing to anybody or did they tell the 11 and all the rest? These are the three options. And then number 12, could Jesus be touched or could Jesus not be touched? According to Matthew 28, Mary and the other Mary hold him by his feet. And then according to John 20, Jesus forbids Mary to touch him because he hasn't ascended to the father yet. So which one is it? Well, it gets even more complicated because 10 verses later in the same book, he actually encourages Thomas to come and touch him. And as far as we can tell, he has not yet ascended to the Father. So what's the dealio? Number 13, our final one. Did they believe the report of Christ's resurrection or did they reject and disbelieve the report? Well, according to infidels.org, Matthew 28 says some doubted, but most of them believed. Whereas Mark and Luke say everyone doubted. Everyone doubted. So which one was it? Which one was it? As one atheist uh, says, who posted on my la on last week's video on YouTube, he typed into the comments and hi, if you're watching. Um, and <laughs> he said this though, he goes, he listed uh, several contradictions, including one that was in the video that he was addressing. I, I mean, I'd already, so I don't think he watched the video. I think he just commented on it. This sometimes happens. And he listed several contradictions and said, I can do this all day and you will never have an answer. The problem is, very often, critics of the Bible, they don't stick around for the answer. They can do this all day because they're busy attacking all day, but never researching to see if these attacks are legitimate, to see if they're valid, to see where the reasoning leads them if they carry it through. So today, we will seek to find reasonable answers to their best examples, and I would encourage at this point, for an atheist who might be <laughs> watching a video of this right now, maybe you should listen to the answers. Maybe you should consider the possibility that the information that you've, you've copied and pasted off of your Infidel's website <laughs> might not be the best. 
Um, so let's look at this. Th these are going to be reasonable answers. That's our goal. Just a reasonable answer. Can we find an, uh, an honest resolution to these problems that, that doesn't conclude in um, irreconcilable contradiction in the text? Number one. Number one. Did Jesus answer his accusers? Again, as they say, uh, the answer is no, according to Matthew 27. Let's look at the passage itself. Verses 11 through 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now, what we actually see in the passage when we don't just give a verse reference, but we read it, is we see that Jesus offers no defense of himself against specific accusations. This is in the context a courtroom defense. The idea of Jesus not answering a word doesn't mean that Jesus became, you know, like a mime from the moment of his, you know, arrest until the end of the crucifixion or something. It's specifically about him not giving a courtroom defense to get himself out of being in trouble. How do we know this? Well, verse 11 proves that verse 14 can't mean Jesus was utterly silent right? Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And then in the very same context, but he answered him not a word. Well, what is he not answering a word about? The things they testify against him. The things they testify against him. So, that, I mean, that puts it in context, right? So then the counter passage is John 18, where they say Jesus did answer his accusers. And let's read it. It says, then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? And then he goes on to affirm that he is the king of the Jews. Now, even in the first passage, we see Jesus having conversation with Pilate. So it's not as though he was mute. We don't think he was mute. We just think he didn't defend himself. This is entirely consistent. So the conclusion is what? Jesus, he didn't defend himself, but he did speak. He spoke simply not in his own defense. And the context of John Shows Jesus, if you look at the whole passage, the whole chapter, and in fact, uh, John 18, 28, it says that they themselves, the Jews, did not enter the praetorium lest they be defiled because they considered it an unclean location, a Gentile place. So Jesus is here having a conversation with just Pilate. So it's no longer courtroom defense. And what does he say? He doesn't defend himself. In fact, what he says serves to condemn him. He affirms that he's a king. This is, in fact, the thing he gets crucified for from the Roman perspective. Well, there's only, the only king is Caesar. You, you're not defending yourself. In fact, all you've done is affirm that you do think you're a king. All right, you're going to get crucified. My hands are tied. I have to crucify you. There's no way for me to around this. I can't release someone who claims to be a king. So what's the solution for the first supposed contradiction? Jesus wasn't silent during the entirety of his trial and persecution. No text in context suggests that he was. He simply did not try to defend himself to avoid being crucified. I think, in all honesty, a critic should be somewhat embarrassed to put this in print as a supposed contradiction. Now, I'm not going to say this over and over again throughout the thing, but if a casual reading of the passage shows that this is not a contradiction, that's, then somebody who keeps saying it is and posting this on, on the web and making blogs about it and, and bragging these statements in debates, and they should be embarrassed. This is silly. This is, this is highly either uninformed or intentionally, purposely deceptive. I don't see another option here. So number two, what color was Jesus' robe? What color was Jesus' robe? 
Was it scarlet? Uh, Matthew 27, 28 says, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. In context, this is, a, this is to mock and ridicule him. Like, oh, you think you're a king? So they put it on him to, to mock him. In Mark and John, we see the word purple describing this road and robe. And they clothed him with purple and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Again, in John 19, it says, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe. Um, was it scarlet, which is like a reddish color, red, or was it purple? I think, forgive me, I'm not an interior designer, so perhaps I'm not, I'm more dudish about these issues. I'm like, is that, sometimes I don't know if something's scarlet or purple, to be honest. Um, but I think it's easy to see both of these words used to describe the same robe. Some of you may rec recognize uh, from the past, I don't know, year or so, this image. Is this, is this dress black and what was it black and blue or is it white and gold it's clearly white and gold <laughs> obviously obviously it's but i'm not saying the robe looked like this what i'm saying is it's understandable how two people can accurately describe an image with slightly different descriptors when they're looking at a particular color okay they weren't looking at a color wheel holding it up to to the robe and just trying to figure out exactly what shade it was so what color was Jesus' robe? Well, it, here's some possible reconciliations or solutions. One, it could have been multicolored. It could have easily been by design more than one color. Uh, someone goes, well, it was red. Well, I mean, okay, well, it was red trim or something. It was, it, was, it was purple. Maybe it was both. That could have been by design. Or it could have been through fading or through stains. It's quite possible. Okay, you're putting a robe on a condemned man who's bloodied and beaten and all this. He's icky, right? And you're going to put this thing on him. Well, I'm not going to bring in the nicest robe I've got. Perhaps they brought him a cast off, a set aside robe that had stains on it or something like this. It could have had different shades in it simply because of fading and stains. Or it could have been a color that could reasonably be described as either scarlet or purple because it was somewhere in the middle of the two. The word used to describe the purple color, the purple color in particular, is um, porphyra. Porphyra, which the complete word study New Testament describes this word as this. This is basically a dictionary, a Greek dictionary. It says, the purple mussel, a type of shellfish found on the coasts of the Mediterranean, yielding a reddish purple dye of great value in biblical times. Um, they're not the only source that says reddish purple as, as the color that this mussel would produce. And so it may well be that it was just a color that could logically be described. One person says red, one says purple. We argue about it. The girls assume they're right. The guys realize they are. And then we move on. So I think it is not wise to see imprecision or generalization as contradiction. Was it red or was it purple? This, it's fair in the case of this narrative to say this is close enough to what it really was that it's not a contradiction. Well, what do you mean close enough? Like, for instance, let's say that there were 573 people there. But in the text I'm writing and 500 people were there. That's not precise, but it's close enough. You know, there's about 500 people there, kind of like in the room here. Yes. I don't know what color that is. Is that purple or is that repel? I don't know. Yeah, so uh, let's go to number three. Number three, who carried the cross? Who carried the cross? Was it Simon, according to Matthew 27, 32? It says, now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. Mark 15 then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, 
as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. So Simon is bearing the cross here, along with Luke 23. Now as they led him away, they lay, laid hold of a certain man, Simon of a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. So he seems to be coming from out of town into town, and they sort of just sort of run into him along the way. Like it's just sort of random guy, hey you, carry the cross. Well, John 19 it's Jesus. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called uh, the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha or Golgotha or Golgotha, if you're Klingon. So here's the solution. <laughs> it was a Roman custom, this, is, this we know, for a criminal to carry their own cross. We would expect Jesus to carry his own cross. This is the default. We would just assume you're going to carry your own cross. They're not going to grab strangers, typically. But it's also required by law for a Jew to follow the command of a centurion to carry a burden for up to a mile. He can just tell you, hey, you, carry this. You have to carry it. End of story. There's no debate. You have to carry it for a mile. This is why Jesus says if someone compels you to go with them one mile, go two. That, that, that was the idea. We also know this. Jesus had been severely beaten, which caused him to die faster than expected on the cross. It was, it was not normal for him to die that quickly. He had been beaten so severely. So here's a solution, putting all these stories together. It makes sense to think that Jesus started carrying the cross according to custom, which we would expect, but Jesus was struggling to carry it and Simon was walking by when a centurion commanded him to carry it the rest of the way. There's other solutions. You could, you could say, well, maybe they, they carried it together. That's how they did in the Passion of the Christ. Uh, you know, that's how they portrayed that cinematically. Maybe they bore it at the same time together, in which case that would also resolve the issue. Here's the point. Are, is this a reasonable solution? Yeah, that's reasonable. Can I prove that it happened that way? Um, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Can I show that it's a reasonable solution and a reasonable uh, harmonizing of the different accounts? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. So, number four. How long was Jesus in the tomb? Was Jesus, and this is one, you've probably heard this one before. Um, you may have even come across it in your own Bible study time. Like, hey, wait a minute. How long was he in the tomb? So this, this is a, a, an interesting one for sure. Was it three days and three nights? For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In the heart of the earth. This is pretty much the only passage that speaks of it as three days and three nights. Um, but it's an important one because... In our normal English, we go three days, three nights. That's how many hours? 72 hours. Like this is, this is a, a straight three evenings, three of both. So was it less time than that? Uh, Friday sometime to, to early Sunday morning? Well, it says in Luke 18, they will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Well, if I'm in the tomb for three days and three nights, then when I rise again, that would be the fourth day. So... But now it says the third day. Then in Matthew 28, it says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now we, we see the typical, and, and I agree with this, the typical belief that Jesus was crucified on Friday. That's the majority opinion for scholars and most people. Uh, we call it Good Friday. You know, That's what we think is Jesus. It, it's not just tradition. There's, there's good reason in the text to think so. So Friday, crucifixion, in the tomb on Friday, sometimes Sunday he risen. That's not, it's not 72 hours that's, that's happened there. So what's the solution? <clears throat> well, this might be a little strange to you, so let me build the case for it. But the phrase three days and three nights is an idiom which does not mean a 72-hour period. When I say it's an idiom, I mean it's a saying. It's a saying. It's, it, it doesn't, 
it's peculiar. And you're like, Mike, that's really weird. How, why would you be so specific as to say three days and three nights? You don't mean three actual days and three actual nights. Okay, well, English is a little weird too. Let me give you an example of some peculiarities we have. For the past hundred or so years in English, we use the word literally to mean not literally. I literally died. But you didn't die. Yeah, that's why I said literally. But that's literally the opposite of what the word literally means. Well, not all the time. Now, if you know English well, you understand this. This makes total sense to you, even though if you were as English as a second language person, you'd be like, seriously, guys? This is frustrating. You can't use words to mean the opposite of what they mean. And then I have no context to know that it's the opposite of what it means. It's just a weird peculiarity in English. But let me give you an example in the scripture where three days and three nights seems to not mean 72 hours. In Esther 4, we read this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did, past tense, according to all that Esther commanded him. Now it happened on the third day. Wait, so we have three days and three nights, and then on the third day, we have this exact same conflict, don't we? That Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house. And she petitions the king on behalf of the Jewish population in the city for them to be, uh, to be able to defend themselves. Now, this is, this is a very parallel passage. And we see here three days and three nights, yet it's ending on the third day. So that's a very parallel passage. Let's give you another one. First Kings 20, verse 29. And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. For seven days they camped opposite each other. And it was on the seventh day the battle was joined and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. So wait, did, if you encamp for seven days, how are you fighting on the seventh day? If you do something for seven days, then after that you fight. That's the eighth day. So this is a, a similar passage. A similar passage. Um, here's another one. First Samuel 30. It says, and they gave him a piece of a cake, a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man from Egypt, a ser servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. So three days ago he was left behind. And he was left behind, so he hasn't eaten or drunk anything for three days and three nights. Yet three days ago... Yet three days and three nights, that's four days ago by, the, by our modern reckoning. That's how we, we tend to look at these things. So what's going on here? Well, let's look at this from the New Testament perspective. When Jesus said three days and three nights, what did they think it meant? Look at Matthew 27. Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. After three days, I will rise. Therefore, command the tomb be made secure until the third day. If it's after three days, why is it only secure until the third day? Lest his disciples come by and steal him. And so it goes on. The thing is, they saw after three days as only leading to the third day, not the fourth day. Why is this? Because this is a Jewish understanding of time. It's how they counted time. We know this from the Babylonian Talmud that they would consider any part of a day as a whole day. It might seem a little bit strange, but let's say that I was fasting and I fasted for two hours today 
and then I fasted uh, tomorrow for another six hours, well, then I fasted for two days. That's really convenient when you want to fast, right? <laughs> You're like, well, it's 7 a.m. I already fasted for a day. So I'm going to go ahead. Hopefully, they probably didn't do that. I don't know. Maybe somebody did. But, but this was normal. We see this. Uh, the Babylonian Talmud says that any part of a day is to be counted as a whole day. And that's why the phrase three days and three nights becomes like an idiom that represents on the third day. This is why four times in Matthew, the same book where Jesus says, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Right? For three days, three nights. In that same book, Matthew, four times Jesus says that he will rise on the third day. On the third day. Now, you could, you could accuse Matthew of being a moron if you want. But the rest of his book doesn't bear that out. It doesn't appear to be written by a fool. And what we should do is we should let the author define his own terms. And obviously, Matthew, three days and three nights, means on the third day. It's just a, it's a peculiarity of language is what it is. Number five, what was written above the cross? What was written above the cross? Was it, this is the king of the Jews? Was it the king of the Jews? This is, uh, oh, excuse me, this is Jesus was the first one. This is the king of the Jews, or was it Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews? This probably comes to your mind without much help. <laughs> the solution to this problem it may well have been that all of these contain part of the sign. They certainly all have one thing in common, don't they? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. That was the thing he was guilty of being was the king of the Jews. So if we put them all together, here's what you get. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Is there any doubt that they're all reading the same sign? <laughs> now, what would be a real contradiction? It'd be a real contradiction if it said, this is Judas Iscariot, the king of fools. Right? This is SpongeBob SquarePants who lives in a pineapple under the sea. That would be a contradiction. This is merely more information. It's plausible, I think quite probable, that the sign identified who was on the cross, this is Jesus of Nazareth, and the reason for his crucifixion, the King of the Jews. That makes sense. Yeah. Kirk, I saw your hand up there. Yes, it's like, and, and that's another, uh, another po possible explanation is there's an alternate solution. It's just an approximation and not a word-for-word -word quote. Hey, what did that sign say, um, you know, where, where, where Jesus, was, it said he was the king of the Jews. Oh, but that's not a word-for-word -word quote. Well, we are in modern times very seriously interested in word-for-word -word quotes. But when we look at the scriptures, they're, I'll put it this way, in the Greek, they didn't even have the convention of quotation marks. Because they typically weren't as concerned with the word-for-word -word quoting of things. Now, they did quote stuff word-for-word. -word. They often did. And you know they did frequently because it's, they're quoting the Old Testament. They're giving a word-for-word -word account of something like that. But, um, oh, you talk, you know, you call mom. Oh, my doctor, talk to her for 10 minutes. And then you hang up the phone. What did mom say? She said Thanksgiving's at her house. Is that really all she said? Contradiction? No, of course. It's just a summary of the thing. And we should give people the ability to do this because this is what they did all the time. They summarize things. In this sense, a red letter edition of your Bible could be slightly misleading. Because even the people who make, who make those letters read, they have to read the text and go, at what point does Jesus start speaking and does Jesus stop speaking in the text? Generally speaking, I think they do make very good choices. And I happen to like red letter. But I think you should at least know that you're reading... The, the translators or the compilers, that's them, they're doing their best guess at where, you know, the, the quote starts and stops. Like there's a debate in John 
did Jesus stop speaking after, you know, at, at John 3.15? And is John the one who says 3.16? Or is that Jesus who says that? Now, believing it's inspired of God, it's, it's, it's only interesting to know the difference. Either way, it's like the Holy Spirit's given us this beautiful passage. But there's a discussion as to where, where did the quote stop and the commentary begin. So, number six, uh, where were the women during the crucifixion? Where were the women? Were they, one, watching from afar? Um, this is what several places say. Let's read them here. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary, the, excuse me, there's not that many Marys, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And then Mark says, there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and it goes on listing their names. We'll get to the who they were. And then, but all his, his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So they're all far off, but close enough to see, some distance away. John puts it this way. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. The implication is that she could hear him talk. Um, so what's the solution? The solution is this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke speak of the location of the women at the moment of Jesus' death. If you carefully read, and I did, each of these passages, Matthew, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in context, the context is directly at the moment of the death of Christ. They're talking, and then they're saying where the women were it's like that moment frozen in time. You know, like where were you at 9-11 or something? You know exactly where you were. The very moment of, of Christ breathing his last, here's, the, here's a sort of photograph of it. They were standing off from afar. John, however, speaks of the location of some of these women at some time before Jesus' death. It's not specific. It's just, he was, he was on the cross for three hours. Three hours he was on the cross. It's not as though any of the gospels have all of these people frozen in place for three straight hours. You know, Jesus gets nailed to the cross and they all get nailed to the ground. That nobody can move, that would be a little bit silly to think that. And this is supported by John. Because what happens is Jesus is on the cross and it says, and when he saw his mother, then he's like, oh, now she's close enough to hear me. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. The implication is there's a, there was a moment where she came closer for some reason or another. Maybe she just came to tell him I love you or something. I can imagine her potentially going back and forth several times uh, during that time. It, it would have been a horrific event. Number seven, did both criminals revile Jesus? Did both criminals revile Jesus? Now, just remember this. I'm not, I'm, these are the contradictions that are brought up. For instance, you'll, you'll hear this contradiction brought up by like Bart Ehrman or by um, um, Michael, the, the Skeptics Magazine guy, I forget his name. I don't even believe it's his real name anyways. Um, anyway, you'll hear it brought up by these basic, uh, I'm just playing, uh, by these common like, like propagators of attacks on the Bible. They'll bring these up. So was it both criminals? Did both criminals revile Jesus? Even the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him, reviled him with the same things, reviled him with the same things. Now we know there was just two other people crucified, just two, only two. That's the implication of the, of the passages as you read them in context. So you can't say, well, there was 12 robbers and you can't do that or was it just one just one then one of the criminals 
who hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? Seeing you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you, in, you come into your kingdom. So was it one Robert, you know, rebelled and reviled Jesus and the other one did not, or was it both? Here's the solution. And it starts with this realization, right? Jesus was on the cross for three long hours. So were those guys. Slowly dying. Right? You can only stand there and mock and ridicule and put up a front for so long. They're dying. And that reality is hitting them. Jesus was known by reputation to this thief, to both of them, really, because they revile him on the cross. They know who he is. And seeing and hearing him in person seems to have had an impact. The thief was facing his own death, and this may have also had an impact. People do change their tune when they're facing death. It's often a near-death experience that causes someone to change the way they're going to operate in their lives. Death is a sobering thing. In the Luke passage, the thief is not seen as going to the cross already a believer. This is important. In the Luke passage, the one where he's the only one seems to revile and the other one believes, he actually is converted on the cross. That's what Luke is showing us. He's not already a believer. He's like, oh man, he comes to it. It comes to him and he goes, oh, we deserve to be here. Obviously not following Jesus with his life. <laughs> he's like, I deserve to be here. And then he looks, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he's converted on the cross. And that's consistent with him reviling Jesus at an earlier point while he's on the cross. He hears the words of Jesus, maybe something Jesus says, maybe something people say about Jesus, maybe the sobering reality of what's going to happen to him. There's lots of um, understandable human reasons why he would at that point put his faith and trust in Christ. So is that a probable solution? That at one point they reviled and then at one point one of them received? Absolutely. Number eight, who visited the tomb first? Was it Mary Magdalene and the other Mary? Just two people, according to Matthew 28. Uh, now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Or was it both of them and Salome? And then we have three people. So Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. And they brought spices. Or was it Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things at least five? Or John 20 verse 1, now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. So was it only Mary? Just one person. The solution is this. All of the above is true. All of the above is true. How so? Well, though the infidels.org website, it says, quote, and I put it in quotes, this is, exact, this is Mary Magdalene only referencing John 20 verse 1. That's not what the passage says. The word only or just or merely or <laughs> alone, it's not in the passage anywhere. It just says Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. In fact, her name is listed first in pretty much all of the passages. So she seems to be the most memorable person on the trip, on the journey. And so he mentions her. And then other ones mention other ones. Um, you know, you, you have, you have a, a, a story, you know, with, with the perspective of Matthew, with the perspective of Mark, with the perspective of Luke, the perspective of John. And that makes sense. You hear slightly different versions of the same story because they're just accounting different details of the same event. So, all together, what we have here 
is Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, Joanna, and at least one other woman. At least one other woman. Now, there is another possibility. Some people think that there may have been multiple trips to the tomb. It's entirely possible. Um, I want you to teleport yourself back in time for a second in your mind. Imagine you're there. You're grieving. You know Jesus has been, has been crucified. You, you, you feel as though the hope is lost. And then, you know, you go to the tomb to visit the tomb and you see that it's empty. The stone is rolled away. Is there a chance that you go back to that tomb later that day? Maybe you bring somebody with you to show them? You've got to see this. Absolutely. I wouldn't be surprised if that tomb didn't have a lot of visitors that day. And for several days coming at that point, I wouldn't be surprised at all if it became sort of a, a site that was visited. Um, so these are all very possible explanations for this. This is not what you call a contradiction. Um, a contradiction would be if John said, Mary Magdalene never went to the tomb. And the other one say she did go to the tomb. That would be an actual contradiction. Number nine, when did they visit the tomb? Was it toward dawn? Matthew uh, 28. Toward the dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came. Was it after sunrise? And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Was it at early dawn, according to Luke 24? But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Or was it still dark? Or was it still dark? Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. So which one was it? Here's the, here's the four up there. Toward dawn, after sunrise, early dawn, or still dark. Here's some things that we should know. Um, these all very possibly refer to the same general time. I mean, more than possibly. After sunrise, toward dawn, early dawn, these are all easily, easily brought together. Probably the only difficult one is John 20, verse 1, that says it was still dark. It was still dark. Um, it's good to note that John is speaking of the brightness of the sky, not the position of the sun. Still dark is the brightness of the right. It's, it's it was dark today because it was an overcast, rainy day. Um, there's times of where it's still dark <laughs> when the sun is yet rising, and it may have simply been an issue of being overcast. So these are general time references, and I think they're good enough to be accurate, if not precise, because in the telling of the story, the precision is not what's they're not aiming for that kind of precision. So we shouldn't call it a contradiction. Let's not demand more precision than the authors uh, intend. And keep in mind this. The trip took more than 10 seconds. It was about a two-mile trip for them to get to the tomb from Bethany where they were staying. It's about two miles. So one story may be emphasizing the time they left for the tomb, the time of day while on the journey, or the time of arrival at the tomb. This would all be within the parameters of the, of the story. So it could be still dark, toward dawn, after sunrise. They, they went out as, as the sun was coming up so that they would have some light when they got there. That's, that's how it comes across. Like I said, the most difficult phrase is the phrase still dark in John 20, which refers to the brightness of the sky, not the position of the sun. And again, there's a possibility that there were multiple trips to the tomb. Um, and some people reconcile it that way. Um, I think they're both possible. You, you, Mike, tell us exactly the order of which everything happened. Well, we, we don't know exactly. What we have is multiple ways to construct these events where there's no contradiction, in which case we have no contradiction. <laughs> so that makes me pleased personally. I'm, I'm fine with that. So it could have been overcast um, or Mary's trip was separate in John 20. So that's number nine. When did they visit the tomb? Number 10, where was the stone when they arrived? 
Where was the stone over the tomb that would cover the tomb when they arrived? Was it already moved? Mark says, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So it's gone in those passages. Now, according to infidels.org and many others who quote the same material, it says in Matthew 28, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary went to see the tomb and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. You're probably seeing the solution already. Um, the solution is Matthew records that it happened, but doesn't say it happened after they arrived. This is just wishful thinking. It, it, in fact, the only time indicator in verse two, behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended past tense from heaven and came and rolled back past tense, the stone and sat on it. This is all past tense. And then it talks about the, it talks about the guards shock and surprise. And it talks about what that angel said to the women in the same passage. This is just wishful thinking. It's almost, I'm like, do I really have to explain this? Do I have to explain? Now, what, what Matthew's doing is what we call telescoping. It happens an awful lot. And, and we all do it. It's when I tell a larger story in a shorter space. And I don't give you every single account. So what did you do today? Well, I opened my eyes. I closed them again. <laughs> my alarm went off. I opened them again. I got up. I tried not to step on my cat, right? I, I, I went to the, to the restroom. I, I took a shower. I put on clothes. I, I put on socks. Ah, contradiction. So did you put on clothes and then you put on socks? You put on socks twice? It, you know what I mean? It's like if you're going to nitpick somebody's story that much, you're going to, of course, find what you want, but it's not rational. No, normally what we say, what did you do today? I went to church. <laughs> That's all you did? You didn't even get dressed? It, you know, you can nitpick a story if you want. It's just silly. All right, number 11. We've only got three more to go. What did the tomb visitors do next? What was their next action? And, and this is one that you might consider to be, I think would consider to be more of a challenge than some of the other ones that we've covered so far. Did they run to tell the disciples, Matthew 28? So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. So did they go to tell the disciples? Or did they say absolutely nothing? You know, dead men tell no tales. And they, say, they decided to say nothing. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Which one was it? This, this on the surface seems like a bold contradiction. It does. It, it appears that way. This is what we call an apparent contradiction. It appears. So let's, let's look at this. Now, now infidels.org offers a third option, which it tries to present as though it is a third completely different option. In Luke 24, uh, they were turning from the tomb. They told all these things to the leaven and all the rest. Um, as if that's contradicting Matthew 28, where they just told the, tw the disciples. Which, of course, can refer to the eleven and all the rest. <laughs> so that's kind of weird. But here's the solution. Here's the solution. They told. They told. Like, how can you say that they told when, when Mark says they went out and they didn't tell? Well, they had to or Mark never would have known. Right? I mean, think about this for a second. Does Mark intend us to think they never told anyone, not even me. I only know about this because of God's, you know, revelation to me. You know, does Mark write that way? 
Mark writes as the account of Peter communicated to Mark and faithfully recorded. So it writes as factual, historical, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, eyewitness accounts. It's not written as a, as a revelation of supernatural knowledge. So in context, Mark should be read to say, well, they obviously told someone eventually, or he wouldn't know that they even knew. It'd be secret. So how do I reconcile then Mark 16, 8? Here's what seems to be the case. They didn't tell anyone while running back to town. They didn't run out and proclaim it to everybody. They ran just to the disciples and they told them. That was it. They, they go straight to the disciples. They tell them. And then the account, of course, spreads. And then from there on, there's, there's an appearance uh, to the disciples to the, to, and then appearances to other people. And they start telling everybody. But the women were the first ones to see Jesus. So just to be clear, by Mark 16, 8 in context, it's, it's rational to say he doesn't mean they never told anyone ever. So then what does he mean? Well, as you harmonize these accounts, it seems reasonable to say they heard the account, they, they, they witnessed the, the, the risen Christ, and they ran, and they were great fear and astonishment, so they ran through town, passing everybody by, not telling anybody else until they got to the disciples. Um, that seems to be the case. That seems to be the case. Um, it, that, this, I think, is one of the more difficult supposed contradictions, and I don't think that it should undermine somebody's faith in the word of God. I don't think it should be seen as bold contradiction because we have contextual reasons to not take Mark's statement as a universal, eternal, never told anybody. So number 12, could Jesus be touched or not? Uh, this is one that I, I was hit with when I was younger and people would be like, the Bible's got contradictions. And I'd always be like, well, show me one. And usually they didn't have anything. Of course, with the advent of the internet, misinformation has never traveled so fast and far. And so they do. But this is one that was brought up to me at one point. Mary and the other Mary, they hold him by his feet in Matthew 28. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And worshipped him. Then we have Jesus forbidding Mary to touch him because he hasn't ascended to the Father yet. So let's read about that. Jesus saith unto her, and there's a reason why I have to use the King James Version here. But um, this is the only version that will support the supposed contradiction. Uh, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. So he says, don't touch me. So touch me or don't touch me. Touch me or don't touch me. Wh which one is it? That, now that would, be, that would seem to be a contradiction, right? Like, well, you touch me or you can't. Like, which one is it? Well, a week later, he, of course, asks Thomas to touch him. He invites him to. He, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So what's the solution here? Well, as you might, as you might suspect, it comes down to what is meant by the phrase, touch me not. Touch me not. In John 20, 17, Jesus told Mary not to, quote, touch him. In the Greek, this is the word haptu, and it means to hold on to or to cling to. It doesn't mean like poke, you know, it's not like a touch, but it's a clinging. Don't cling to me. This means he wasn't saying not to touch him at all, but not to cling to him because he had more to do. I have, I'm having it ascended to my father. It seems a mysterious statement, but he's got, in other words, there's, there's other things to do. Um, so don't cling to me. Now, the reason why I had to use the King James is because almost every translation says cling to correctly here, accurately translating, which is why I, ha I had to go to the King James Version 
And keep in mind, remember that in the King James times, they knew less about Greek than we know now. And so I would, I would lean towards a modern translation. This is one of the reasons uh, for that. So it's, it's only a, a, quote, contradiction when you have a less accurate translation. And when you have a more careful and accurate, honest translation, it disappears entirely. So number 13, our final one for the night. For our marathon of Bible contradictions. <laughs> Here we go. Did they believe the report of Christ's resurrection or not? Or not? Did they believe it or did they not? Some doubted and most believed. Let's read the passage here, Matthew 28. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers I go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Um, I seem to be missing a portion of verse... Oh, here it is. Verse 16. All right. I was like, uh-oh. I added verse 17. Infidels.org didn't include it, but I, I felt like you had to have it in there. It didn't make sense. So now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's all from Matthew 28. And that's... We skipped several verses there, which is kind of important. <laughs> we'll come back to that. But so, so some doubt, most believe. That, that's the way that they, they understand this. Some, you know, they, they worship him, but some of them doubt. Then we have all of them doubting, Mark 16, 11. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. And then, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So they do not believe them. So what's the solution here? Uh, well, if you were paying attention, you already know. You already know, which is to the shame of those who would use these types of supposed contradictions. The solution is in Mark and Luke, they are in or near Jerusalem and they doubt the disciples. They doubt the initial report of the women. That's what they doubt. You women, I don't believe that you really saw him alive. As most people would probably doubt, not just because they're women, but hey, I saw that guy that we love that died. He's alive. You know, probably you would start by doubting this thing. In Matthew, however, it's talking about sometime later when the 11 went to Galilee, 70 miles away, and they see Jesus in person. We're comparing two different events that happened on different days with different circumstances. And we're comparing them as if they present a contradiction when they're not even talking about the same thing at all. At this occasion, Jesus appears to them and most believe, but some doubt. Think about this. This is a completely different event. And remember that Jesus' appearances, they, they happened multiple times over a period of about 40 days. It, just, it happened continually in lots of different times. So is this a contradiction? No. No, it's, it's bad. Like, it's bad. Like, this is just anti-intellectual, like, bleh. I, I don't understand. In conclusion, the Bible is not full of contradictions, and the common examples that skeptics give prove to be false accusations. This is, this is great. This is why you say, give me your best example. Because if you have a good example, I want to know. I don't want you to be like, well, I can give you 500 more. And we're like, yeah, but if your first 500 are chaff, then why would I even look at your next 500? I have a challenge to atheists on the internet in particular. 
keyboard warriors, I challenge you to stop making false claims. If you're up on the web and you're making false claims and, and you watch this video, you know that these are not good, good examples of contradictions, yet you're going to go cut and paste it onto the next blog you do or the next video you comment on or the next video you share is based on these same false contradictions, then you should stop because you claim to believe in truth and want to go for what's accurate and what's real, then you should do that. You should do that. So next week, uh, we're going to deal with several other important supposed contradictions. It'll be different than this. I'm not going to just deal with a, a list of, say, 13 in a row that I'll deal with the same story. We're going to do something very different. We'll deal with supposed contradictions regarding quantities and numbers. There's several of these. I think it's best if we just deal with them as a group and principalize the issues related to them. There are discrepancies between, say, First Chronicles and First Kings or between, a, say, a New Testament statement and an Old Testament event. Um, I don't think they're contradictions, but I'll explain when we get there next week. Um, we'll deal with things like, has anybody seen God or not? Next, it'll be two weeks for us, that's right. Um, we'll also deal with, did Jesus get the facts wrong on the Old Testament? This is, this is the particular contradiction that was sort of the, the open the floodgates of Bart Ehrman's unbelief. He's one of our atheists in point. We use his material to respond to in, uh, in this series sometimes. Bart Ehrman says that uh, Jesus was just either either Jesus was wrong about the Old Testament here or Mark was wrong about Jesus. Either way, it kind of kind of like started his sort of free fall into what now has become like a militant anti-Bible type of attitude. And, um, and we'll do more. We'll do other stuff as well. And then that'll be the last week we do on contradictions. My goal is to, um, in the first week, cover common contradictions, give us an intro to the topic, cover specific things. This week was deal with probably one of the most hot-button areas, the death and resurrection of Christ. These are super common. And to take a whole bunch of them dealing with the same area and show you how they, they're not really a problem, I think. And then next week, uh, my goal is to deal with a few more that are more hot-button issues, but also to deal with the hardest contradictions I can find. I want to bring the, quote, best examples of difficult contradictions, and that's, that's next time. Uh, that's next time. So let's pray, and then I'll take any questions you guys have. Father, thank you for the, uh, the ability to research these things. And we live in such a beautiful time that at, at our fingertips is the ability to, to search different translations and search different, uh, even Greek and Hebrew resources, to access the hard work of uh, godly men and women who have plowed through these issues and dealt with it and we're just grateful for that we pray that you'd help us to be wise help us to be a good example and help us to also be like Stephen um, in Acts with that with that irresistible wisdom and work of your spirit so that we can stand up with a, a gracious and loving attitude but immovable about the truths of God Lord we want to be be your witnesses in this world and we pray that you'd make us that and we ask that your hand would be on this video series as it goes out um, to YouTube or around the world, wherever it goes, we just pray that you would carry it to the people who need it the most and that it would be a wonderful blessing to them. In Jesus' name, amen.